Welcome to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. I am Dr. John, the guide for your heroic journey towards greater health, success, and most importantly, happiness. And now, on with the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome. A great afternoon to you. And thanks for tuning in to the Evolved Caveman Podcast, where you learn the latest about yourself, success, and happiness. I am Dr. John Schinnerer, and today I am talking about one of the pressing issues in America that you may not know about. It's called alexithymia, and it literally means having no words for feelings. So picture this. Have you ever known a man who is numb or emotionless or who has flat affect? I've had dozens of men over the years tell me, I just don't feel that much. And nothing really moves them for good or for bad. They just seem to be completely analytical, completely in their mind. And they kind of go through the motions of life with little sadness or fear or anger. And on the other side, no joy, no love, no curiosity, no awe or wonder, and so on. So alexithymia is an absence of emotional intelligence. And it's truly a severe difficulty for most men in this day and age. I would say it's the norm more so than the exception. And I have seen this absence of emotional intelligence cause a lot of problems for many men. I've seen them cheat on their spouse as a result of this. Because if you can't identify the excitement and desire that you feel when someone new shows an interest in you, you might act on that. I've seen men embezzle funds from work. I've seen them split good business partners. I've seen disconnection from romantic partners. I've seen them get divorced and more all over this inability to name and work with emotion. And we men have a hard time with our emotions, which makes perfect sense because they're shamed out of us at an early age, early and often. So today I'm talking about men and emotions. And I got to say, just saying those two words in the same sentence kind of makes me feel uncomfortable. It makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. You see, most men and myself at one point think that they'd be better off without feelings. Men are taught, we're socialized by parents, friends, society, and culture from a very young age that the phrase emotionally aware man is an oxymoron. The words male and emotions are mutually exclusive, like military intelligence, Christian scientists, or Microsoft works. With looks of disgust and contempt and those sharp words we tell each other of stop crying like a little girl or don't be a bitch or don't be a pussy, we're taught ourselves and upcoming generations of young men that they are supposed to be alexithymic, that it's desirable. We teach them with our impatience and disgust for their shows of emotion to be a-emotional, to have no idea what they're truly feeling. And this leads to a vicious cycle where we suppress our feelings in order to avoid painful feelings. And then when we get our feelings hurt by others, we learn to stop expressing our feelings because as we quickly learn, it draws looks of anger and disgust and judgment from fathers, peers, and friends. And after this happens a few hundred times, we become emotionally plugged up, emotionally constipated. 
we become alexithymic. The one problem here is that you can't selectively mute emotions. Unfortunately, you can't just silence the painful, uncomfortable feelings you don't want to experience. Because when you do that, you also numb the positive emotions. And in this case, while you don't have the pain, you also shut down any pleasure you might have. In essence, you shut down any shot at happiness in life. Another big problem here is that the effect of repressing these emotions is cumulative. The emotions don't go away. They stay in your body. They wreak havoc on your immune system, your GI system, your cardiovascular system, and more. Negative emotions are additive. They're cumulative. They build on each other. And the more anger, sadness, and fear that you have within you, the worse off is your health, your behavior, and ultimately your relationships. And one of the big foundational pillars of a happy, thriving life is relationships. So one of the questions that came to my mind is, what about gender versus environment? How do those two impact us? And a recent study of identical twins shows that negative social influences have a greater effect in creating bullies than do genetics. In other words, boys are taught, they learn that verbal aggression is an effective and acceptable response to certain situations. And who do they learn this from? I would say sometimes fathers, sometimes mothers, definitely friends and peers, and definitely the media that we watch. Monkey see, monkey do. If they see fighting going on at home between mom and dad or between parent and child, the child will pick up that same style of verbal and or physical aggression. In this study, genes accounted for about 20% of the differences in social aggression. While social relationships, that which was modeled to them, appeared to explain 60% of the differences in social aggression. That's massive. Monkey see, monkey do. Within the difficulties created by our culture and the pre-existing social relationships, we have individual differences. Differences in personality, moodiness, temper, impulsivity, our need for attention, and so on. So different boys will interpret the same social situation differently. One boy may view being picked last to be on a team at lunch or in PE as an indication that he needs to practice more on his basketball skills. Another boy might interpret the same situation as an insurmountable hurdle, which throws him into an emotional tailspin. And a third boy might take being picked last personally and think that the captains aren't picking him because they don't like him. And in his mind, this can be enough cause to get verbally and perhaps physically aggressive. All right, so let's return to the topic at hand, alexithymia. What is this exactly? Well, alexithymia involves six core difficulties. The first one is you just have trouble identifying your own emotions. Hey, how you doing, Bob? And the response is either fine or not so fine. And a lot of people just divvy this up into good, bad. And that's as far as we can go. 
And yet we know from studies at UCLA that the ability to put the right emotion label on what we're feeling, what we're experiencing, actually helps to turn down the intensity of that emotion. What's more, it helps with communication, with relationships, with empathy, with knowing how other people feel. Number two, difficulty telling the difference between feelings and bodily sensations. And this is a combination of low interoception and low emotional awareness. And interoception is one of our senses that most of us weren't taught about in school. It's the ability to sense what is going on internally in your body, in your organs, to tell what is going on in your chest, your abdomen, your jaw, what's going on with your pulse rate, your pelvic floor, your muscle tension, and so on. A peer of mine, Andre Dakare, a former monk and current therapist, taught me that it's really important to focus your awareness on the tension in your forehead, in your jaw, and in your pelvic floor. So stop for a moment and ask yourself, why would your mouth and your asshole be so important to be aware of? Well, the critical reason for this is that our mouth and our sphincter are the first two parts of our body that we ever learn to have control over with regards to the outside world as a baby. So think about that. We were able to first control what went into our mouths. Think of the you know, young infant saying, no, turning their head, closing their mouth. I don't want to eat that. And what came out of our anus? That's the 12-year-old pronunciation of anus. Why do you think one of my favorite insults as a teenager was, dude, you're so anal retentive? It means you're uptight. You need to relax. Your sphincter is clenched so hard it could break a pencil. So a lot of our stress and tension can reside in our jaw and in between our buttocks. So it pays to just tune into those two places and just see, am I holding any tension there? How relaxed am I? A while back, actor Dennis Quaid was recently treated for anorexia, which he named manorexia. And interestingly, a hallmark of anorexia is the ability to distinguish, sorry, the inability to distinguish one between different emotions and two between different emotions and bodily sensations. And most teens that are plagued by anorexia experience this twisted, painful knot in their stomach, which is actually a ball of emotion that they just can't differentiate between what's going on there, what's, what are they feeling? And then they either stop eating, they don't want to eat, or they want to eat too much in an attempt to soothe that pain in their abdomen. And this lack of emotional awareness can lead to a very real and very deadly disease. Number three, alexithymic people have a hard time talking about their feelings. Often it's embarrassing to them, makes them feel uncomfortable, or they just don't have the words. Number four, alexithymics have a poor imagination, a restricted fantasy life, and a limited memory of their dreams. And many clients will tell me after I've been working with them on improving their emotional granularity that they are remembering their dreams more often and their dreams are in technicolor. They're very bright and colorful now, now that they've started to reconnect with their emotional life. Many people with alexithymia have a poor sense of humor. They don't find the humor in life or in things they don't amuse themselves or not amused by others, which makes sense. If you don't have, if you're not in touch with emotion, well, 
having a sense of humor, laughter, smiling, all those are heavily emotionally related. And six, finally, many with alexithymia have numerous body aches and pains arising from their stuffed emotions, from rigid thinking, from having a hard time displaying emotions. Like, I haven't cried in 12 years, which is, again, pretty typical. Okay, so that's a little bit about alexithymia, but why should you give a shit? Isn't it better to just not feel? I mean, you're performing relatively well in your job. Your life is moving along pretty well. You have a romantic partner. Why is this an issue? Well, for one, alexithymia has been shown to be related to a number of disorders, anxiety, high blood pressure, chronic pain, substance abuse, depression, marital infidelity, and eating disorders. It's also one of the, I would say, biggest reasons that wives are giving to divorce their husbands in the US right now. And, you know, you've heard the stats of 50% of marriages will end in divorce. And right now, wives are initiating 75% of those divorces. And the wives that I've talked to in the last 10 years, their biggest complaint is not so much like, oh my God, my husband cheated on me. Or, oh my God, my husband's not a good provider. It's, I can't connect with my husband. Well, when you're talking about connection, that's all about emotion. I really, I mean, it's, if anyone's ever had a relationship with an engineer, like that's more intellectual, that's more analytical. And there's not much emotion there if they're, you know, highly, highly intellectual and have been rewarded their whole life for being analytical and thoughtful, they have neglected typically their emotional side of themselves. And therefore, they have a hard time connecting emotionally with others. Now, what's more, there's a number of studies that show that emotionally aware people are far more likely to succeed, find satisfaction, and be happy in their work and home life. And you know me, I'm a big fan of that happiness thing because I've, I've just seen too many successful people that don't have the happiness thing. And what's the point? I'm like, okay, I got a shit ton of money. I got a boat, I got a car, I got an $80 million plane, but I don't even like being alone with myself because it's me. And I don't like being with my spouse because they annoy me. I can't connect to them. And I don't like being with my teenage kids because they're angry at me. So without the happiness piece, the rest, I would argue, is wanting. So back to this idea that emotionally where people are more likely to succeed and happier, one study found that emotionally intelligent managers are 127% more productive than the average manager. And this, this, story, this study goes back a little bit, but at L'Oreal, emotionally competent salespeople sold over $90,000 more than other salespeople. And another study found that successful retail store managers were those who best handle stress. Optimism, another emotional competency, also translated to increased productivity on the job. Optimistic salesmen at a classic study at MetLife sold 37% more life insurance than pessimists. Who do you like to talk to most? An optimistic person or Eeyore? Finally, at the upper levels, emotional intelligence was the best single predictor of which candidates would be the most highly successful senior executives. 
So these are just some really cursory results of different studies to show you that it pays to develop your emotional competencies. The question next is, how do you do it or how do you begin to do it? And this is a pretty involved question. So my experience is that everyone needs to feel their full range of emotions if they are to thrive and succeed. And this involves a number of things that I don't fully have time to go into in a half hour show. But to get you started, I'd begin by learning how to correctly label your feelings. Our vocabulary for emotions is remarkably poor. The average individual, average adult can name three emotions in their body as they are occurring. Three. Happy, sad, angry. Good. Bad. Okay. That's ridiculously poor. There was another study I saw a while back that showed that men on average can name, just name, eight emotions. Women, it was about 17. So if the battle of the genders or battle of the sexes motivates you, then that's great motivation to begin to learn a little bit more. So we have this poor vocabulary and it's, you know, it's, it's frustrating for me because I'll go and I'll ask people as they come in, like, you know, how was your day or what was exciting or, and the answer will be either good or not so good, fine. And it's as if our emotions simply come down to good or bad. And we need to learn the full breadth and depth of our emotions. For example, just as one example, you could learn that there are four types of anger. Anger at others, anger at yourself, disappointment, which is kind of anger combined with a judgment, and constructive anger. So anger that you use for positive social ends. You can begin to be like get your attention out of your head and into your body. And begin to become aware of the bodily sensations within yourself that help you to tell the difference between them. What is it that is your first tell that you are beginning to get slightly annoyed? Is it tightness in the jaw, increased heart rate, tightness in the chest? One client told me it was tightness in his forearms. I don't get that. It doesn't mean it's wrong, but it's his tell. What is it that tells you that you are starting to get depressed? What is your first tell that you're starting to get fearful? What is your tell that you just got your feelings hurt? What is your tell that you're starting to feel curious or wonder or awe? So begin to be curious and add new emotion words daily, especially those that get at the positive side of the emotional spectrum. Words like content, peaceful, uplifted, elevated, serene adoring, blissful, and so on. And one of the easiest ways to start this is to ask yourself three times a day the simple question, what am I feeling right now? And there's studies that show that this simple exercise begins to build the ability of metacognition or thinking about thinking. And this is huge. Metacognition is massive. I cannot overstate the importance of this ability. It's the difference between being immersed in your stream of your thoughts and feelings and believing them, being fused with them. Oh, I'm such an idiot. And then you believe that thought and you look for evidence to support that thought and then it bums you out. And eventually you begin to believe it. It's the difference between that or stepping out of the stream 
and observing your thoughts and feelings. The ability to create some psychological distance between yourself and your mind. The understanding that you are not simply your mind. You are not only your thoughts. You are far more than that. And the cool thing about this ridiculously simple, scientifically validated exercise is that your answer to the question doesn't even matter. It's simply the act of pausing, taking a deep breath, and asking yourself, what am I feeling? You are learning, training your mind, training yourself to observe your thoughts and your feelings. The first step is always self-awareness. Without self-awareness, you've got no clue what's going on within you. And even to some extent, to some extent without you, without of you, outside of you. <laughs> because without self-awareness, you're simply an automaton, a mindless creature of habit going through the motion, which is what many of us, how many of us live. I remember that stat from Tasha Yurik, 95% of us will self-report being highly self-aware and studies show that it's actually only about 15% of us. So we learn by watching adults as children. So it's critical for parents to learn to manage their own anger and become more self-aware and develop this emotional granularity. That way they can teach by example the important messages of anger management. Modeling is one of the most powerful ways we can teach our youngsters. And one of the most important messages we can share is the need to find positive outlets for anger. So just to use an example of anger, as an adult, you want to convey the following messages to children. It's okay to be angry. I can handle your anger. And you want to teach them when they're not angry, you can tell you're getting angry because you can feel the blood rush to your hands. Your eyebrows go down in the middle of your face. Your body tenses up. Your jaw might get tight. You want to hit someone. You want to yell. And all that's okay. It's, there's a difference between the emotion that we feel and how we behave based on that emotion. So you can be angry. The anger is just a messenger telling you that someone's treating you in a way you don't want to be treated or violating a boundary. The anger's trying to get you to speak up and be assertive and say, hey, this isn't okay. You can't treat me like this. I won't stand for it. So there are okay ways and not okay ways to show your anger. Not okay to hurt anyone, to break things, or hurt pets when you're angry. It's okay to tell someone you're angry. There are ways to calm yourself down when you're angry. Take three deep breaths. Exhale longer than you inhale. Focus on five things you see around you. Name them. Focus on four things that you hear. Three things that you can touch. It's okay to go to your room and take a break when you begin to get angry. And as I've mentioned before, men learn early on that showing feelings is seen as a sign of weakness. Often this starts at home, and it is definitely reinforced by peers in the media. Acting angry, on the other hand, is seen as a sign of strength. No one messes up with us when we're pissed, unless it's another angry man. So for protection, boys begin burying their feelings so as not to be seen as weak, afraid, or inadequate a boy's greatest fear. Instead, boys hide their feelings via emotionless talk. We're very monotone, robotic almost. 
We hide our feelings via physical withdrawal or silence. And when these options aren't possible, boys can resort to violence. And as Thomas Sheff from UCSB states, this is the silence-violence pattern. Vulnerable, blah, blah. Vulnerable feelings are first hidden. After a time, the feelings become hidden even from themselves. Later on, these behaviors become compulsive and unconscious. When men are confronted with threatening situations, they're compelled to be silent, either emotionless talk, withdrawal, or silence, or they resort to violence. And one of the things I always ask my clients is, what's beneath your anger? What's the emotion that preceded the anger? And very quickly, like a third of a second quickly, but you know, is it my feelings were hurt? Is it I was embarrassed? Is it I was anxious? Is it was I was afraid? I was humiliated. I was felt guilt. I felt ashamed because we will hide most of our emotions behind anger. So here's some essential life lessons that every parent should, should share with their kids. But I think it's also important for us to realize as adults. So the first one is be curious. Kids are innately curious. But in our rush to get wherever we're going, we're always urging them to hurry up, move along. And nothing will better unite you with your children and connect you with your children and better prepare them for life than sharing mutual wonder and the urge to explore and doing everything you can to keep their innate sense of curiosity alive. Because I really believe as a parent of four that we are working against the public school system. In other words, the schools often squash curiosity. We parents need to work to keep their curiosity alive despite the school system. Second, be generous, not just with your money, but with your time, your attention, and your love. The spirit of generosity will teach your children empathy, helping them feel concerned for those around them. And I truly believe at this point in my life that time and attention are the currency of relationship. So oftentimes, your kids, when they're annoying you, they want your time or attention. When your wife is getting annoyed with you, she often wants your time or attention. Employees at work often want your time or attention. And, you know, right now there's this big push in leadership work about around presence. Well, what is presence other than the ability to be in the present moment, which extends to your ability to generously give your time and your attention to those who work for you? Third, admit when you're wrong. Have intellectual humility. Realize you don't know what you don't know. If you don't act as though you're perfect, your children will know they don't have to be perfect either. And perfectionism is a one-way path to a miserable life because very little comes out as perfect in this life. And then finally, well, I guess not finally, next, be willing to fail. The kite crashes. Uh, repair of the remote control car doesn't work. The puzzle pieces won't fit together. So what? You've shown your kids that it's important to try new things regardless of how they turn out. And I think, you know, one of the biggest blessings we can give our kids is to share with them the idea that failure is simply a learning opportunity. And I'm still working on this one personally. 
because it was so drilled into my head that failure is unacceptable or second place is first to loser. You know, all that shit we used to get when we were younger. But I've also realized on the opposite end of the spectrum as I've gotten older that when I fail or when I fall down or when I make a mistake, that is one of the most powerful ways that I learn. Next, work on being spontaneous. You know, my dad planned everything down to the last detail. And while it's fine to be organized, it also creates pressure to do things in certain ways, which takes some of the joy out of life. And teach your kids that it's okay to abandon plans at times when something else comes along to turn left, even though they plan to turn right. I, I like that saying from, I think it was John Lennon, that life is what happens. Life is what happens when you're busy preparing other plans. And so having, it's kind of the idea of mental or cognitive flexibility. Can you turn on a dime? Can you be flexible in your thinking? Can you let your agenda go at times? Can you let that damn to-do list go at times? That thing's a son of a bitch. And by the way, we all die with a full to-do list. So may as well get used to it and not let the to-do list negatively impact your relationships. Um, and then two more. One is embrace spirituality. And I say spirituality there purposefully. We know from research that it's helpful to us to believe in something bigger than ourselves. We know from research that self-transcendent values are helpful in terms of finding a happy and meaningful life. So I'm not here to tell you what to believe. I am here to say that it's helpful to believe in something larger than yourself, that life does have meaning and purpose. It's not always evident to us at times. Sometimes it might take I don't know, 10 years for karma to come back and bite that asshole in the butt. Maybe it takes a lifetime. I don't know. But, you know, to encourage yourselves and your children to cultivate their sense of awe and wonder and appreciation, whether it's by going to a church or a synagogue or meditating or appreci appreciating the glories of nature, that belief that we are part of something bigger, that there is some meaning to all the madness. And this, this idea of spirituality is like a muscle. So the more you use it, the more you see meaning in apparently meaningless things, the more you see the connection, the more you see that we are all interpersonally connected, that everything on this planet is connected, the more you use that, the stronger it gets. And then finally, this is you know kind of nothing earth shattering, but respect your physical body. So nothing is more, more important than good health. And so if you don't have your physical health, uh, I mean, I was in chronic pain, uh, I guess a year and a half ago, and that makes everything else harder. I mean, it makes it really hard not to be irritable, not to be impatient. It makes it really hard to concentrate, focus, write, talk to people. So you want to make sure that you do everything you can to take good care of the one five-layer meat sack that you're handed this time around in life. Okay, so today I spoke about alexithymia, that we men learn early on to bury our feelings. It literally means having no words for feelings. Once our feelings are buried, men tend to respond to perceived threats, perceived threats with silence or violence. The silence can include withdrawal, verbal silence, or emotionless talking, kind of that stonewalling idea. Over time, these behaviors become automatic and habitual. And if those options aren't available, if those are cut off from us, we can resort to violence.
Um, and when they grow up, these boys turn into men who are alexithymic, which, as I've just shown you, can lead to a lot of issues. So the goal is to develop your emotional competencies. You want to learn to identify your feelings and let them go. What's the message they're trying to send to you? Got it. Thanks, anger. You can go now. In this way, you can learn how to let go of your negative emotions more quickly and lead a happier life. As one researcher at Stanford, Philippe Golden, said, emotional management is the happy life. So if you want to find out more about this, just keep listening to the Evolved Caveman podcast. Thanks so much for your time and attention. I really, really appreciate it. I really appreciate your courage and your willingness to learn and push yourself out of the comfort zone. And if you like this episode, please like, rate, review, share it, do whatever you do on social media. If you didn't like it, that's okay. You don't have to do a damn thing. This is Dr. John signing off. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. If you like what you've heard, support us by subscribing, leaving reviews, and sharing the podcast with friends and colleagues. For the latest, most powerful tools to connect with like-minded men, join the Facebook group at The Evolved Caveman. Follow Dr. John on Instagram at The Evolved Caveman, all one word, or join the email list by visiting guidetoself.com. 